there, all you wonderful warblers. Thanks for joining us for another week of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Sarah, and I'm joined by the fabulous Casey, as always. Happy post-Thanksgiving week, Casey. How are you doing? How are things? I don't know why that's an event to be recognized. Yeah, I feel like the end of the year, we're just like, let's just throw all the holidays in here so we can be less sad about it being cold. And <laughs> It's 85 <laughs> degrees here today. Well, isn't that special? It is raining <laughs> here. <laughs> uh, happy post-Thanksgiving week to you as well. Mm. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm good. I'm a little tired because of all the festivities. I love Thanksgiving food, though, so I'm yes. quite happy at the amount that I consumed. What about you? I, how was your tv dinner it was to hit fine the spot. it was not yeah. it was not the best tv dinner i've okay. ever had but it was fine the drop biscuits that i made with soy milk turned out wonderfully yes uh, i also made snickerdoodles from a box which is not normally i will actually bake snickerdoodles but i just was like i'm feeling lazy i'm gonna get a mix from a box and they were so good <laughs> i have eaten them all already amazing uh, but yeah they were great and then just yesterday i put up all my christmas decorations so. and see your tree it looks yeah. amazing uh, well i don't know about that but it's it makes me happy there you it go. That's important. Pretty, yeah. If you guys, last year we did a whole holiday series on Christmas gifts, Christmas trees, mm -hmm. reindeer. So if you guys want to learn about like what the best Christmas trees are for the planet or like some gift ideas, go back and listen to that the series. And let me so tell you, yes, we talked about Christmas trees and I do have a fake Christmas tree, which you will learn is not the, the most eco-friendly choice, generally speaking, but my have I have this commitment to keep mine for a long time. And and Marie's man, testing it. it's yeah, it's a commitment because <laughs> it smells a little bit like dog urine in my house right now. But Sarah's I, tree is like genuinely a beautiful it, artificial it, yes. tree, yes, and I she like splurged. keeps it in a very fancy bag that mm -hmm. like you know. So she's doing all the right steps. She just happens to have a dog who thinks that trees he, are. He game. tries to be a good boy. He knows. <laughs> He knows he's supposed to go outside, but he's like, there's this tree and she's been gone for so long. <laughs> oh, Murray. I'll do the best that I can. Uh, so I'm hopeful that with a little more time and cleaning and air freshener, it will be fine. It's not it's that bad. Yeah. I'm just sitting right next to it, right? That's, this is where I set up my computer. And so fair fine. enough. Yeah. It makes me happy to have it up. Okay, I have an important question for you. Yes. Um, the second will be, did you do any of the homework? But the first one is, was Thanksgiving Wordle's word snood as oh. we thought about last week? It was not snood. It was themed. The word oh, was, was it? Okay. Was feast on Thanksgiving, which okay. I, do, I do actually think I read that there's a person doing it now, whereas before it was automated and okay. now there's actually a person doing it. So I got to believe that that was not a coincidence that they did that on purpose. Did I guess snood? Yes, I did. Good. <laughs> that was Commit to the not bit. a yeah. very helpful <laughs> first word uh, in that instance, but that was, that was not a difficult word, so we were still fine. But I did post an adorable comic featuring the snood on yes. our Facebook page. So. Check that out if you yeah. were like, I have no idea what Casey and Sarah were talking about <laughs> thinking on yes, this look, audio medium. <laughs> look at look at our Facebook page. It's really cute. And that uh, I think it's Bird and Moon Comics is what it's called. And I know you've shared stuff from them before, too. They have a lot of great nature Bird. and science yeah. related 
Uh, and yes, as for our challenges for the week, I sure I did a great job not feeding any wild turkeys. So uh, good there. And I did do some reading, trying to do a little research into some species conservation success stories that I wasn't as familiar with. And I just Googled it. And of course, you get a lot of the bald eagles and the California condors and black-footed ferrets and all alligators, all great stories that you definitely should read about. I have read a little bit more about those just through through our careers. We're a little more familiar with, with most of those big success stories. So I spent a little bit of time reading about a few other birds that I was less familiar. I mean, there are a lot of birds, I think, that have that sort of similar journey as what we talked about with the turkey as you know, more around the early 1900s having that big dip in population for various reasons. So some birds that I just wasn't familiar, uh, like the snowy egret, which we have a lot of around here that I wasn't familiar with that had a big population dip back then for their feathers, as was the case with a lot of birds for fashionable hats using those bird feathers. So some animals that I just hadn't been familiar with having that conservation success story. It, it was also funny because I talked about making, uh, choosing a local conservation yes. success story, whatever you wanted to define that is, whether it was a state level or a country level thing. But I didn't really say like what, how, how to define a success. <laughs> so there were oh, some yeah. animals that were popping up on success lists. Like I started reading about the red cockaded woodpecker which is fascinating. There's lots of cool stuff to read about as to the, the causes of their decline and the work that's being done, but they're still federally listed as endangered. So like things are moving in the right direction, but I wouldn't necessarily define them as being an like out of the woods necessarily success right. story, if you will, but still really interesting to read about. Um, and sort of on that level, but I think they've recovered a little bit further was that the Kirtland's warbler was the other one that I was reading about too, which just had a lot to do with having a, a very specific habitat and a very limited range during part of the year. And so it was interesting just to read about the efforts that need to be made to restore their population. I'm proud of you because I was like, I know conservation success stories about Eagle the alligator, and then I didn't do that extra legwork to look up my own. But you've done several, and so some of those lesser-known guys, that's that's impressive. And I also didn't feed any wild turkeys or <laughs> Good job. any other wildlife this week. Yay. So I hit the low bar at least. <laughs> uh, no, you, you have, uh, I think, a, a much higher base level knowledge than I do about such things anyway. But it it is... And, and obviously I didn't, uh, you know, dive too, too deep on all of these stories, but it is fun. It's fun to learn a, a little bit more. And I think that's something that I used to do more frequently when I was working as a conservation educator. And I don't do it as often yeah. now, just sort of on my own, digging deeper into things. So it was fun. And I, maybe I'll share, I'll post the some info about those birds to our Facebook too. You should. Uh, we will get into some conservation success stories today, but I um, am afraid that <laughs> we're going to be a little bit more focused on some of the conservation challenges that wildlife is facing right now. This week, I wanted to talk about a, a bunch of headlines that I saw come out a couple weeks ago, which basically said that wildlife populations had crashed 69% since 1970. And so 
I wanted to do a little deep dive on what that actually meant, but I wanted to start out as our icebreaker, Sarah, of what's your reaction to seeing these headlines or other conservation headlines? So specifically for these headlines, I will say, which is something that I know we're going to talk about, I I mean, your immediate is, oh my gosh, that sounds terrible, but I very quickly go to the, okay, what does that really mean? <laughs> like, right. So I think I look at it with a skepticism is too strong a word because I do look at that headline and I'm like, oh, this is, this is just not mean good things. But I also look at it as a, I'm not sure that this means exactly what my brain jumps to when I see the headline. So a part of me is like, are we sensationalizing something a little bit right. here? Uh, and I feel like I need to understand more about what they're actually saying. Did you click on any of the articles? I actually didn't, which sounds really terrible given what I just said. Like, I should learn more about this, but I don't want to right now because I'm just scrolling. Right. <laughs> I'm just scrolling through the news stories right now. So I know I have, I know a little bit about it. I'd picked up on a little bit, but it wasn't until you said you were going to do this as a topic that I started to really get into it a little more. And that's partially, as we'll talk about, just because I have a sort of anxiety around large studies like this that I that I don't fully understand everything that's that's being said so I'm sure we'll get into that too I also didn't read any of the articles when <laughs> I first came out. for me it was like a um confirmation of things I already felt mm -hmm. like yeah that sounds about right and that reading more wouldn't have necessarily like edified me in any sort of way that I didn't already feel sure. like yeah I know. <laughs> Do I need to dwell in this place? But I decided I wanted to dwell in this place because this is a big headline coming out. And um, we have all, all sorts of conservation headlines that came out when COP27 was happening. And like you got quotes like the world is going to be on fire. Like things like that are, you know, they're meant to provoke a reaction. And so I wanted to know, all right, is what these headlines saying actually what is reflected here. Who's doing this study? What are we talking about? And so today I decided to do a little bit of a deep dive of what that meant. So hopefully we'll both learn a little bit of something <laughs> and uh, stick around and we'll get into it. Like I said, guys, I, I read a lot of headlines without doing a lot of clicking, which I think is a a general thing that a lot of people are familiar with. Indeed. Um, and I would say are guilty of because I can also say that like that still the headline still sticks in my brain and still colors maybe my view of of current events without me always having as much information as I should. And so for this one, I really wanted to deep dive into this. What does it mean when different publications are claiming that almost 70% of wildlife has disappeared in the last 50 years? And so I looked at the report. So this report came from the World Wildlife Fund, and it is part of their Living Planet Index, which they have come out with before, actually. There yes. is an edition in 2018 and 2020 before the 2022 report. I don't remember 
any headlines about the other ones. Do you? I do. Okay. Yes, I do remember. And that when you, when you first mentioned that you were doing this, I was like, how recent? So when I started searching for it, I was pulling back up some of those headlines from those previous years. So, so I did remember that. And I actually, it was helpful to go back and read some of those older articles too, as I was trying to learn about this current one. Yeah, I think that's a good practice. I would say most of the articles when you did click on them were pretty straightforward. None of them were really like um, investigating any methods behind the report. They were sort of just reporting what the report was saying, summarizing what was going on. I only found like one thing to quibble with in one of the publications that we'll get into in a second. But this is put out periodically and I used for this research basically the report and then there's also a deep dive version of the report. So those are my sources of like actually looking at what sort of data they're using, what sort of things are they trying to communicate within this because this is not a scientific paper per se. This is actually a, a longer publication put out by the WWF. And at the beginning of the report, it says that the stated purpose is that it is designed as a springboard for action to provide food for thought and to act as a catalyst for transformational change. So I feel like when you're like getting into a published article in a scientific journal, the authors are not going to give you a stated purpose that is basically provocation. It's going to be informational. So already we're deviating from what we would consider a normal report. And obviously the World Wildlife Fund has particular stakes in what they are researching. They they want to protect wildlife. And so that I would say could be considered a bias in some ways, but really the amount of data that they're using for this are mostly just reports on populations. So the actual data itself, I wouldn't say is something that is skewed. Maybe their recommendations from there are something that you could take into account where it's coming from. But I think that the study itself is really supposed to be, that number is just supposed to be as accurate a portrayal of what they see going on. Right. I fully agree with that. I think they they definitely do have a a bias, but it's that doesn't mean that the data isn't factual those are right. separate things so you can still look at the report and interpret the data for sure i think i was surprised i have not read the full report i have it i, I was just pulling like it up on pages. my phone <laughs> uh, it's like 60 according to my phone but uh I, so yeah i've not read the full thing i did look at their kind of summary online but i think when i opened it i was expecting more of a scientific paper i was like i wanted i want to understand better how all of this was gathered and that sort of thing so that that in and of itself that moment was a helpful to understand what i was actually looking at here right and because of this stated purpose of the report it is designed to be fairly accessible i'm not going to say the whole thing is accessible because there are parts where i'm like and that is beyond what i am able <laughs> to really like elucidate out of that but um for the most part you the average layperson should be able to read what's going on here and understand generally what they're trying to communicate in some ways that is much nicer than a scientific journal mm-hmm. because man it is sometimes hard to look some at what you're jargon. doing yeah Yes. So the Living Planet Index looks at populations of mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, and fish. So vertebrates, anything with a backbone. It's not looking at insects, plants, 
bacteria, et cetera. Um, but the report does mention them within it. So Sarah, if you were trying to take a barometer of life around the world and you're a scientist trying to design this study, what important factors would you need to include? Casey, there's a reason that I never <laughs> went into research and this is it right here. Designing a study whoosh, just feels like it just there's just so much. There's so much mm-hmm. trying to design those parameters to make sure that the data that you're collecting is going to help you with whatever it is you're trying to figure out. So I don't, I'm, I'm hoping to learn from you on this one, but I mean, I guess I would say like, if you're trying to assess global populations, you do want to make sure that you actually are global. So mm-hmm. like you are really looking at species that found, found around the world and looking at multiple points within those ranges for all of those species. Cause we know that species are not necessarily evenly dis distributed across their range. So making sure that you're getting data points from multiple spots over a range, if that makes sense, are those are probably the biggest thing that, that comes to mind. I feel like you would want consistency of that data as well over time. But honestly, it just feels like such a daunting task to me. And th- that is one thing that I wish I sort of understood more about how and where all of this data was coming from. Totally. I mean, this report does have a reference sheet that's super, super long. So you can find a lot of where the data is. But when I was reading through it, they basically acknowledge where the strengths and weaknesses of the report are and how it's changed over the years. And I learned a lot of like, oh, yeah, I didn't even think about where that would come in. But you're right. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say like, and I I did read how they talked about that they've added in new species Mm -hmm. over time. And that is just really just strengthening the accuracy of the number. I guess, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but if you're adding in sort of more populations, that's just giving you more data to see which direction things are going. Right. So the the 2022 report looked at about 32,000 populations of over 5,000 species. Now, to give you an idea, there are about 5,000 mammal species out there, like 5,000 to 6,000. And there's way more. There's like 10,000 bird species. Mm-hmm. There's way more fish. So this is obviously not every species on planet Earth of the vertebrate class is going to be right. within it. But they did add a lot compared to the one before. So again, we're at 32,000 populations, as you said, over a species, they can, some areas, the populations can go up, some of them can go down, depending on the part of their range. And the species and populations have not been consistent through the lifetime of the report. They have added 838 new species to this report and uh, over 11,000 new populations since the 2020. So that increased the number of fish species by 29%, for example. So they felt that fish were really underrepresented in prior reports. And so by adding more of these species that were underrepresented, they're trying to better get an accurate representation of overall life on Earth. Um, And they also increased representation for some areas that didn't have as much data in prior reports. So, for example, they really focused on gathering more data from Brazil because they felt like that was an underrepresented part of our biodiversity within the report. 
Those species have to have a robust population data, even if it didn't track over the entire lifespan of the report, they said. So the report started in 1970. We're not talking about a, a decline from like the beginning of mankind. Right. We're talking about a decline from 1970, which makes the number way scarier. <laughs> in some ways. Yeah, I think that's an important point though and answered one of the questions that I was going to ask. So these new populations that they added in this year, that means they do have population data going back, even if, like you say, it's not necessarily all the way to 1970. They, when when we say that they've added in a population this year, that means that they've added in population data spanning some time up until this date. Yes, not that is my understanding. We've added in, we know that there's X number of species or of of individuals in this species in this location in 2022 that's not really helpful to this report they have to be tracking a trend over time that's yes. what this report is doing yes so you might ask like well why didn't they do it last time so one of the limitations that the team tried to address from prior reports is that they had an english language bias which I didn't think about when I was first thinking about that question of how do you design a study they said in the past that you know, the majority of data coming out in scientific journals was in English language, but more recently, it's been much more evenly distributed across different language groups. And the people who are actually writing the report only speak English. Mm -hmm. So what they did is they collaborated with folks from the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil to include reports that were in Portuguese. So I was one of the things if they couldn't find like a translated work in another language for it because they knew that Latin America was something that was not as well represented as they wanted to within the sample, they used some collaboration to include more of this research that is being done so that now they could add a lot more of these species in reports that they were not as familiar with or couldn't translate themselves. So that's that's one of the ways that they were able to add species with data from across the time period that they didn't necessarily have the same sort of access to the last time. The conclusion of the study is that the overall, and hopefully I'm saying this exactly correctly, the overall abundance of wildlife has decreased 69% since 1970. So that's a 52-year period. And they do include a margin of error. So you might say, like, <laughs> that seems very specific for the wide data that they're getting. The calculated margin of error, so about a 95% confidence interval, is 63% declined to a 75% decline. So that 69% is kind of hanging out in the middle there of, of where they think it is. Oof. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't sound great. Not great news. Um, And you will see this report. So this is the one quibble I had in one of the articles I saw where they were reporting the numbers from previous reports and comparing them to this current report saying like, look how much worse it is now. That doesn't necessarily mean that between, I think like in past reports, maybe it was only 67% decline from like 2020. Look how, how much worse it is now. That doesn't necessarily mean that we've lost 2% of wildlife in the last two years. Right. It means that the more species that, because the data wasn't consistent, the more species that we were able to pull the better we were able to say that over the time period that there was actually a bigger decline because we were able to get more data. Yeah, which I think is, is a really important distinction and makes sense. I feel like 
I am not a numbers person. I was always more of an, an English reading over math. Math uh, was tough for me and things like this are tough for me to grasp. And I do, I, I think hearing that 69% decline is also still just a difficult thing for people to understand. I was reading a National Geographic article related to the 2018 release of this that was really helpful. The The headline of the Nat Geo article was widely misinterpreted report still shows catastrophic animal decline. <laughs> so basically it was saying this doesn't mean what people are saying it means, but it still means really not good. Which is kind of interesting, but it is a nice, they have some nice little explanations to say like what that number really means. And so the number was 60% for this report. And it said, another way to say it would be that the report found that populations of vertebrates declined by 60% on average, but that's not the same as saying we've wiped out 60% of all animals, which I think is what people think from reading those headlines. And it's a very different thing. And they go on to give some examples with different numbers and animal populations. Like, let's say you have 50 tigers and 200 falcons and 10,000 squirrels and, you know, gives examples of how those numbers change. That was super helpful for me to understand what this is actually saying. So like I said, it may not be exactly what you think, but that doesn't mean it's not real bad. Will you throw that in the show notes for me? I sure will. Oh yeah. We'll we'll link to that too. Yeah. I mean, there are certain parts where you do have to make some decisions about what data to include because they did talk about the particular way that they analyze the data being sensitive to outliers. So if Mm -hmm. you do have something that like, hey, the population actually exponentially increased in this one species, that can skew the data probably more significantly than you want. And so they did exclude certain outliers for like the very best and the very worst and looking more at that general population. That is a pretty standard thing Mm -hmm. to do, but it is something to think about in like how we analyze this data is, this is why there's a confidence error. This is why we always sort of hedge our bets on on how much we think that this is down to the individual. So yes, and it's also important to note that they're not like taking a census and being like, Tony, Tony, are you out there? <laughs> Looks like Tony's dead. It's, <laughs> yep, that's one plus one. Like they're they're trying to really get a, a wider picture of the species um, rather than like very short in- intervals. Like you said, over time, these trends are the important part. So let's take a look a little bit about these trends because they do focus on a couple things. We're really looking at different geographic ranges, different habitat types, and different taxa that we need to keep an eye on. And so they they point out one of each for it. But I wanted to first go by the geographical range. And so if you look at North America, because we have a North America bias right here because we live here, (laughs) there's been a 20% decline overall. If you look at Europe and Central Asia, which is Russia and then some of those like Stan countries, Turkmenistan and all of those, um, (laughs) they had an 18% decline. And really interesting to me is when you looked at the graphs, because they'll actually show you, it's not just like, what, mine is this much. They actually show you the graph of what they see. Uh, There was a period of increased abundance peaking in the 90s. Yeah, I noticed that too. 
I thought that was really cool. <laughs> yeah, it definitely because it just goes to show you I I think that it is possible, I think, because I think some people yes. might just assume like, well, this is the way that it's going to be and this is the trend and so it's just going to keep downhill from here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but no, it, yeah, so it was really cool to see that. So they kind of have 1970 marked as the baseline. Yeah. And so you can see it go above that baseline. Very exciting. It's possible. We can do it. It's possible. And that is something that the report calls out is that like conservation efforts are working. We just have to do more of Mm -hmm. them. Because that is a thing to point out too, going back to just the overall trend is that it has slowed, right? The graph shows that too. And you see a significant drop off and then it's curbed a little bit towards the end. Yeah. I just feel like, you know, once you get to towards the sure lower end I of the spectrum you. is that like the less damage you can do to right. the no, smaller I, amount. I, I feel that too, but <laughs> but it could also be because we're working. That's we're, true. That's we're true. Doing yeah. work. Could be both things. But anyway, <laughs> back to the the Back to the thing. numbers. Um Asia, the Pacific Islands, and Australia had a 55% decline. Africa had a 66% decline. And definitely the worst was Latin America and the Caribbean, which had a 94% decline. Yikes. Yeah. (laughs) Yikes. And obviously, if you average all those numbers together, it might not equal 69%. So you have to look at the relative biodiversity of these areas as well, because we might not have as much wildlife as the Amazon, for example. Right. And you also do have to remember the time period here. If Mm -hmm. we were starting from further back in time. Mm Mm-hmm our number would probably be larger as well. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I say probably it would be. (laughs) It would be, absolutely. Uh, The biggest decline associated with a specific habitat was in freshwater habitats, which includes one-third of all vertebrate species, according to this report. So that's uh, freshwater Mm -hmm. populations have declined 83%. That's not fish. Like, that is fish, but it's not just fish. (laughs) Right. The decline they have in there is attributed to human proximity to these habitats, mostly. So, like, I think it's also most people live within a couple miles of a river, for example, a lake. And because we need water, also most vertebrates need water. Right. So we need those. And the other thing that they attributed to it is damming of rivers, which prevents fish and other species from migrating. So when we put barriers up, a lot of these species can't travel back and forth for reproduction or to get to their food resources. Their populations get fragmented. And so that causes decline. Um, The report referenced the removal of two dams in Maine, which helped heron populations recover from a few hundred fish to two million fish within a few years, within five years. Wow. Yeah. So it can make a difference. Yeah. (laughs) The other thing they call out is if we're looking at taxa, a particular um, group of species that they're keeping a special eye on are sharks and rays because they have a particularly intense decline. They also showed it by shark size as well. So large sharks are particularly um, having a decline. So overall, sharks and rays have declined 71% since 1970 and large sharks have declined 81%. For some reason, that really surprised me. Really? I don't know why, Like, but I just wasn't expecting that them to be that significant. I didn't, re- I didn't realize 
upset. I wish the report would have gone in a little bit more about why this is. They attribute it to fishing pressure increasing 18 fold since 1970. But I feel like a lot of what we hear about as well is finning of sharks. Right. And so, I was aware, like, which yeah. is something that I'm certainly aware of is an issue, I guess. But that's, I guess that's sort of my thing is I didn't realize how significant and clearly not the only issue, but that's 81% man. Right. I, I do wish they would have gone in a little bit more of like, what is bycatch? Like, what are we accidentally mm-hmm. doing? What is habitat degradation? And they probably just don't have those numbers, but it is something I, I wanted a little bit more information of. Um, They did identify some specific threats. The number one threat to wildlife, Sarah, is habitat loss. Habitat loss. Yes. They identify as land use modification. So basically when humans are changing yeah. habitat to other things um habitat loss caused by us (laughs) but caused by us exactly um so it's habitat loss degradation just means that the habitat has gotten worse quality and is unable to support as many of the same wildlife or you know is basically not useful to that population anymore um so that's number one and they call that out several times is like that is the one that is the big driver of declines but number two they had on the list was species exploitation which is a blanket for hunting and fishing poaching and bycatch so what we accidentally bring in as well yeah for some reason again like i know this is a common thing we talk about it a lot i just i guess i didn't realize it was so high up on the list still i mean yes i guess i hear a lot about with fisheries and things like that it's just I think part of it is that land use modification covers so many also things <laughs> like right. that's deforestation as well as like agricultural expansion and things like that and yeah. dams <laughs> like all of those are sort of the same category in this report. I do wish like poaching is not the same category to me as hunting. I agree. <laughs> and so more breakdowns of those would be interesting to look at. But again, that's probably extremely species specific. So that's all under the same category. Invasive species and disease are brought up. So when it's interesting because like when plants are brought up in this, they're like, plants are good. We need trees. We need, they are habitat. And when they bring up bugs in this, they're like, bugs are bad (laughs) they spread disease and kill trees and destroy habitat and etc etc they also do a pretty intensive job of connecting all of this to people like also like hey the those herring populations bounce back from a few hundred to two million within five years but what that did is it allowed their the population of humans to fish them again because they couldn't before. So the same thing where they're like, oh, when you have more invasive species and it's, you know, you have more disease, it impacts humans too. Um, Pollution is on the list. And then the other thing that they make sure that everyone is aware of is that climate change is not the biggest factor facing wildlife at the moment, but that they expect it to become the biggest factor pretty quickly. And it's going to contribute to Mm -hmm. habitat loss and degradation right and they call out 
I mean, and habitat loss is also contributing to climate change as well. Like it's a reciprocal relationship. And they talk about climate change impacting these invasive species and disease, Mm -hmm. being able to exploit Mm -hmm. habitat and animals they didn't get a chance to before. So yes, that is basically like this looming figure within this entire report is like, yeah, this is what's going on right now. But like if climate change hits that threshold that we consider the tipping point, all of these populations that are already on the precipice are just going to be like shoved over the edge by a lot of the impacts of climate change. And I do think, you know, the solutions are connected to so things that we're going to need to do to help slow climate change are going to be things that help in other yeah. ways as well. You know, if they're going to cut down pollution, it's, you know, going to change the way that we use land and all of that. So. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And that's really like a a big part. They're, they spend a lot of time on what, like, okay, this is the data, but here are what our proposed solutions are that they spend actually, I would say more of the report on those than they do necessarily on like the hard numbers. I'm not going to go too much into those because they are WWF's recommendations. They are fairly speculative in, you know, yeah, it would be nice if we did this, but we'll see. Um, But I do want to point out a couple non-animal related points that feature in those. Um, The first is that people rely on nature. Like if you are, yeah, if we're talking about species exploitation as being hunting and fishing, that's also how we feed ourselves. So if we don't have the populations of those animals, then we're going to have an issue feeding ourselves, at least in lots of parts of the, the world. And a lot of these that are good, what's good for wildlife is good for nature. When we have trees, we have cleaner air. When we have healthy river systems, we have healthy water sources for ourselves. So they really tried to make that nexus clear. The next thing that I thought was important to point out is that, um, they, and they pointed out here too, indigenous people remain the best stewards of biodiversity with biodiversity in lands managed by indigenous people, the same or higher than in formal wow. conservation areas. I thought this was interesting also because in school, we also read some articles about how WWF has a pretty complicated relationship with indigenous peoples. Even just recently, some articles have been coming out about that. So they're definitely not like the people who necessarily should be leading the charge on that. But it is really important that they're acknowledging yes. that this is. And basically what they said is, this is what indigenous people have been saying the whole time. And now the science that we're studying is catching up with it. One of the criticisms they've had is that WWF is a big proponent of things like national parks that really exclude use from indigenous people who have lived there mm-hmm. the whole time. Um, and what they found is this like fortress conservation where it's like, just keep all the people out and everything will be fine, actually is oftentimes not as effective as allowing people to manage the land in a sustainable way, the way that folks have for thousands of years. Right. And then they also point out kind of ta- tacitly, but that, that's really stood out to me is that the countries experiencing the worst ecological declines are the least consumptive countries per capita. Yeah. And they so- think we talk about that conservation community in general. You start to hear things about that too, is it's, it's also the people who use the least that are going to be hit the hardest by negative yes. effects too. So yeah, Latin American uh south american and african nations consume like like three to six times less than 
people in North America do, for example, they kind of the graph they have are spectrum. So it's hard to pinpoint exact numbers for each country, but they actually translate it in how much land does it take to sustain the average human within these countries. And man, in in these countries with the biggest declines, they they just are not using as many resources, which means it's both possible to do that, um, but also that our impact in North America, where our declines are not as severe, impacts other countries. Mm-hmm. So they do call out a lot of supply chain issues and how we can more equitably have agriculture be diversified and things like that as potential solutions. Points of hope because we don't like to be sad all the time. <laughs> a couple animals that are defying the global trend. Loggerhead sea turtle nests have increased 5,000% along the coast of Cyprus between 1995 and 2015. That's quite a number. It is. It's specifically due to conservation efforts. So they like will cage off the areas from both predators and humans. They close certain tourist areas so humans don't impact the nests. They will move nests if they feel like they are not in the right place. So this is direct human intervention increasing these success of these loggerhead sea turtles. So that's super exciting. The common crane, which was almost extinct at a time has been brought back to 200 individuals um i thought this was interesting because it like 200 is not very big um but they said that 2021 was the most successful year for this crane i think reproductively since like the 1700s so all right i'm gonna be reading more about that i know (laughs) that's um it's they're in england i believe and then mountain gorilla populations in Virunga have grown from 280 in 2010 to 604 now, um, which is a pretty big deal because that's a pretty tumultuous place for them to live. For sure. What's next? So what I think the WWF was trying to do by releasing it at the time they released it is because there is a conference of parties coming up in December. So you guys probably heard about COP27. That was the climate change conference that happened in Egypt a couple of weeks ago. Um, one of the big developments that came out of there is they did establish framework, at least for a fund that developing countries would put money towards helping um, or sorry, de- like developed countries, countries with more developed economies, richer countries, basically, who are causing more of the problems are going to be contributing funds towards countries that are on the losing end of climate change without being the ones who are really making as big of the impact. And that's been a a big sticking point for a really long time is that how are we going to ask countries that don't have as many resources to reduce their carbon footprint when they're just trying to improve the quality of life for their people and historically have not been the ones who have made the climate change the problem in the first place. So with that happening, great, that one's under the belt, but COP20, or sorry, COP15, which you're like, is this just the same thing going backwards? COP just stands for Conference of Parties. Mm -hmm. This one is for biological diversity. So this is the 15th Conference of Parties for the Convention of Biological Diversity, which is a 1992 commitment from 196 countries, the U.S. is not one of them, to protect biodiversity. So the convention will hopefully bring about some more commitments for further protection for habitats and increasing funding for conservation. And that's basically the big thing that WWF wants to see come out of that conference is they want to see much more commitment to making sure that we have plans in place 
for conservation. A lot of these things are not legally binding, for example. So I am always like, does this... <laughs> the skeptic in me is like, I know how much is greenwashing? You know, how much is like people putting on a, a face? But they said that um, the 1992 commitment really did make a difference. I know the Nature Conservancy is hoping that there will be a commitment to 30% of land being put aside either for conservation or specifically managed by indigenous people and that's a big push of theirs mm-hmm. is to make sure that like this is this is a big issue with freshwater habitats we're just in too much contact with wildlife if we can get out of their space a little bit they have a better chance of being able to to move around and successfully reproduce and all of that so that i think is why the timing of this happened and that's really what they want to see is this report make a difference in what happens in that conference. I hope it does. And yeah, I think it's hard not to be a little pessimistic sometimes about those things. We see people come together and make these commitments that then don't pan out. But I also, you know, the optimist in me just has to keep saying like, it's better than nothing. Like it's good. It's good that we're getting all of these people together regularly to keep talking and keep putting these things out in the news and get it into people's you know, in front of people's faces, into people's brains, you know, every little bit helps. Yes. Also, I think um, people get animals better than they yeah. understand climate change. Yes. It's like a much more tangible thing for them. So I think it's exciting to have that potentially be in the news and be like, like nature. <laughs> We're, yes, it is in conversation with climate change all the time, but what are we doing specifically for nature? And knowing that a lot of those nature solutions are also going to help with climate change is just a nice little bonus on there. Is there anything else? No, I feel like I need to go back and read the whole report now. I still have to get my brain around the numbers of the whole thing, but it does feel good. I feel a little bit more responsible and aware and like a better, <laughs> a better uh, quasi-conservation educator now that I've actually read more than just the headlines for this. So thanks for taking this one on. Yeah, and we'll put all the reports and things in the show notes, so you should just be able to boop that little link and go right there after you're done listening to us. But stick around, we're going to do our wrap-up and our homework. All right, this is the conclusion of our episode where we give you guys a task to do in the next week or not in the next week, but in the future um, that helps uh, related to this topic. So my first one is to start keeping an eye out for news about COP15. That is going to be happening between December 7th and the 21st. So there should be lots of news articles coming out about it, and that should be within the next week for you guys listening. So probably create a little... uh alert something yeah. on your phone i don't know how to do that but i think you can <laughs> <laughs> or if you um, just same. say it around your phone enough it'll probably spy on you and do it for you automatically google it it'll end up popping up in your your yeah mentions from then on um and then challenge to you read the articles don't just read the headlines <laughs> 
I've been personally attacked. No, <laughs> no this was because of me too, <laughs> of not reading a lot of these headlines. I like, I do have that sense, especially around climate change and especially around when we're talking about like, extinction talk that like, I think I have enough information. Mm-hmm. That this is not going to necessarily help. And there is some importance to that too. Yes. Like knowing how much you can take and your boundaries. Your yes. Yep. Take your breaks remember to find your hang on to your hope find your positive things but don't bury your head in the sand right and I think like it would it was not helpful so when COP27 was happening it would not I think have been helpful to me to read when the UN person on climate was telling us how the world's gonna burn down like that quote is not necessarily for me because Mm -hmm. I know (laughs) and reading that article with that quote, isn't necessarily going to improve my mental health, improve my knowledge of climate change. But when they were making the decisions about actually what was going to happen, that's when I needed to read those articles and know what what our commitments were starting to be. I think that's the important with this is that if when the first speakers come out and tell everyone that like we will live in a natureless world one day, they are trying to get the attention of the world for people who are like, whoa, where is that coming from? Even if the people like us are the ones normally paying attention to that stuff. That, that's what they're trying to get. It's really when they start making decisions and commitments to things um, that I'm going to be clicking on a lot of those articles to see what's going on. What does that actually mean? And maybe if something interesting comes out, we'll do another episode on it. I can see that in our future. All right. Good ones, Casey. Thank you again for taking that on. If you all have any comments, if you have questions, if you have suggestions for things that you want to hear about in the future, you have a lot of places that you can find us. Uh, Like we said, we'll be sharing some things on our Facebook page. You're more than welcome to comment or send us messages there as well. Just a little greener podcast, super easy to find. We're on Instagram as well at a little greener pod. We're on Twitter at a greener podcast that I do a shameful job of checking, but you can (laughs) reach out to us there as well. We're on YouTube if you would like to use captions to watch slash listen. And if you would like to email us, you can do so at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, Sarah. We hope you guys have a good week. Yeah. Always wonderful chatting with you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good week. Bye. Bye.